This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Inside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I'm aware that the release schedule has been a little more erratic than I would hope. Longtime listeners know that this show is actually uh, something that I uh, do not do in my full time uh, work, and uh, fortunately, when certain things come up, uh, my release schedule can sometimes become erratic, and I do apologize for that. I also know that just given uh, some of the things that I've shared here on the air, as well as some of the things that I've shared in my newsletter, that there are some aspects of, of life that are just taking priority at the moment. Um, you can read about that in the most recent post on the Post Evangelical Post that's titled, I Still Haven't Socially Recovered from Lockdown. Uh, I share a little bit about what's, what's, what's going on um, offline um, and you can you can read that at your leisure. I'll link it in the show notes. However, I did also want to recognize here in the air that it is Pride Month, and um, I wasn't able to book and record and edit a full podcast, uh, a new interview, to acknowledge that fact. But I do have a wonderful uh, interview from my archives with the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, in particular with Aaron Green and Paul Southwick from the, from the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. If you're unfamiliar with their work, they empower LGBT, LGBTQIA students who face abuse and discrimination at religious colleges. They filed a landmark lawsuit uh, against a number of religious colleges for discriminating against um, against LGBTQ students on their campuses that this interview that you're about to hear um, was recorded and published in September of 2021. Uh, Since then, in uh, uh, January of this year, there was an initial dismissal of this case, but they have filed an appeal. Um, I will link to their website which shows the timeline of how things have progressed with regard to their class action lawsuit they have filed they also do a lot of incredible work on the regular on social media and in networking with college students on campuses they uh, have been doing throughout pride month a can't pray the gay away uh, social media campaign on their uh, on their instagram page and elsewhere and i highly recommend you check that out and also uh, head on over to www.thereap, that's T-H-E-R-E-A-P dot org to learn more about the organization. The Religious, the Religious Exemption Accountability Project is also one of the um, organizations that I regularly donate to as part of the Post-Evangelical Post. You can learn more about that over at postevangelicalpost.com slash about. That is the newsletter that helps to fund my work, including this show, as well as other potential future shows, my ongoing writing, that sort of thing. That newsletter, which is hosted on Substack, helps me cover costs. Um, And I greatly appreciate it if you would subscribe to it. There is a free tier, which gets you access to almost everything, and then a pay tier of $5 a month or $50 a year, that gets you access to things like ad-free podcast feeds and a little bit more. So again, this interview was uh, did take place in September of 2021. 
That's when it was initially published. Things have changed with regards to the lawsuit, but a lot of what we talk about is still very relevant for queer students on Christian college campuses uh, and also just with regard to the personal experience that both Aaron and Paul bring to their work. Um, they do extremely laudable work and I am uh, very happy to have this uh, this relationship with them and I've had an opportunity to talk to you uh, talk to them back in 2021 and hope to have them on again soon. So without further ado, let's hear from the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. Happy Pride, everyone. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guests today are Paul Southwick and Aaron Green of the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, also known as REAP. Paul serves as director of REAP, and Aaron, a return guest, is the campus and alumni organizer. Paul and Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, Blake. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to talk to you about what REAP is up to, so let's actually set the stage. Uh, what is REAP, and could you summarize the lawsuit that you've actually filed against the Department of Education? Sure. Thanks, Blake. So uh, this is Paul, and I started REAP about a year ago with the idea that uh, religious exemptions to civil rights laws, they come at a cost, and the cost is often borne by queer people, people of color, and women. And in our name, we, we try to center accountability. So that's why we're the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. And what we're focusing on is accountability for the grave harms that are caused by these large loopholes to civil rights laws. So in general, we're about accountability for religious exemptions, and more specifically, we're focused in the higher education sector uh, currently. And that's where we started our uh, class action lawsuit, Hunter versus the Department of Education. The purpose of that lawsuit is really to hold the government accountable. Mm. And could you talk about that a little bit and why, why you started there and with a class action lawsuit? Is there a benefit to mounting that particular type of legal challenge? Sure. So a class action lawsuit against the government can create a systemic resolution to the injustices that queer students are facing. So you can imagine, um, you know, REAP could bring hundreds or thousands of lawsuits against religious colleges all across the country or departments of education in various states, um, that would be really burdensome. It would be um, burdensome on the courts. It would be burdensome for any organization to try to, to mount something like that. And so when you have a case where there is a single source of, of the discrimination, here, the Department of Education's funding of religious educational institutions that explicitly are using that money to harm queer and trans students, then you, the class action type of vehicle is a great vehicle for bringing about systemic change. Mm. And you mentioned when you were describing the religious exemption itself, you you use the term loophole. Uh, can you describe what, the, what you mean by that and, and how these administrations, these colleges utilize lo loopholes? Sure. So right now, there are about a million students attending more than 200 religious colleges and universities across the country that uh, explicitly discriminate while taking federal funding from the Department of Education and a variety of other government agencies. And so those students, um, they are put in this place where the, the government and the educational institution have essentially promised to protect them and guarantee them basic civil rights. However, when they experience discrimination at these places, and if they try to protect themselves by going to a Title IX coordinator or going to the Department of Education itself, the government just slams the door on their cry for help. How does it do this? Why? What's the whole apparatus? Well, it has to do with Title IX and how it was originally enacted, um, where it came with a very large um, religious exemption that says any educational institution controlled by a religious organization doesn't have to comply with any parts of Title IX if it, on its own, <laughs> believes that compliance would conflict with its religious tenets. What does that mean in a little bit more simple terms? 
That means religious colleges can take all the money in the world from the government that they want, and they can treat queer students and trans students horribly, and there is no accountability. There is nothing these students can do. And so for decades, we have seen queer students oppressed at these institutions, federally funded institutions that have conversion therapy programs that make sexual assault survivors scared to report their sexual assault for fear that they'll be punished for their queerness or their trans identity that comes out during the report and horrible acts of harassment and bullying and other forms of discrimination. And so these queer people have been bearing the brunt of that oppression for years. And as a lawyer, I was taking on individual cases for about the past decade where I would get a call or an email from a queer student or from an organization like Brave Commons um, that Aaron started or Soul Force, like who we're partnered with now, and I would help them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And I'll tell you, Blake, things have not gotten better. At, you know, a civil rights for queer people have dramatically increased with Obergefell and you know, the recent decisions from the Supreme Court in the public sphere, but it has not gotten any better. In fact, it's, it, it's possibly gotten worse at certain institutions for queer and mm -hmm. trans people. And Aaron, I, I actually want to use that as, uh, uh, as a segue to hear from you and talk more about the students. Uh, as Paul mentioned, you, you have been involved in advocacy and, and networking for, for queer students on college campuses for a while now, drawing from your own personal experience as well as turning that into advocacy work. One of the things that we talked about the first time you were on our show was why queer students end up at these colleges, which I think a lot of people that maybe come, maybe have only experienced liberal spaces don't necessarily understand. Um, and you actually do a very good job. It's a prominent part of Reap's website now of articulating that. Could you elaborate on the sort of realities that queer students face on religious campuses? Yeah, that's a really great question. It, you know, it starts from day one in these spaces on religious institution campuses, um, opening speeches by presidents disavowing anti or using anti-LGBTQ rhetoric in their speeches. It happens during lectures from professors disseminating their own personal ideologies about what they think, you know, the LGBTQ community means. Um, for example, one of my first classes at Biola University um, was a hermeneutics class. And in the first few sentences that came out of the professor's mouth was that homosexuality was ruining this country. And instead of teaching a hermeneutics course or handing out the syllabi, you know, that was, <laughs> that was how we kicked it off <laughs> in that class, which is terrible. Um, so you, you're surrounded by this anti-LGBTQ ideology and culture that the school creates. And then you're also surrounded by a lot of fundamentalistic uh, students who are also attending these schools. So you're really getting a double whammy. And then on top of it, if you're if if this student's family is not affirming, you have like a three way thing happening where no one um, closest to you is affirming you in this space, and it's it's scary, it's isolating. Um, just having non affirming language in a policy creates a higher propensity for a student, a, a queer student to feel isolated, to feel depression, anxiety, um, to feel alone, to have suicidal ideation. These are the realities for queer students on a daily basis on these campuses. Blake, I think in part you were also asking, you know, how, how do these students end up here? And, you know, Aaron has a great explanation for that on our website and I'll, I can also just share my personal experience. I, you know, I was at one of these fundamentalist religious colleges and I was sent to conversion therapy by my college and heard these messages. And I think that my path is one of many paths for queer people to end up in these spaces, but it's a pretty common one. And that's that I was born into a family of fundamentalists. And when you're born into a family of fundamentalists, 
um, and I was homeschooled, went to church at a rural evangelical church. You don't know any other message other than condemnation for homosexuality and for people who are trans. And so your internal message is that these feelings are bad and evil, and I should go to a college, I should go to a safe college, and probably my parents will only pay if I go to a safe college, meaning a college that will reinforce that homophobia and that transphobia. And so, yes, do, do, do these young people have um, a choice in where they decide to attend, sort of. They're not, they're generally not being forced at gunpoint to go to these schools, but they have been taught this self-loathing ideology and it has sunk in so deep that they want to go to these places. And usually what ends up happening is that a couple years in, they realize there is no fixing this. There is, there is no fixing their homosexuality or their gender identity, and now they are stuck. They are stuck in a hostile environment where they can be turned in, and I'm not using hypotheticals, Blake, where they will be turned in by their roommates, where they'll be snitched on, where if they ask someone out on a date and the date goes badly, they can be reported to the honor code office where professors monitor their social media and will turn them into the dean if they express anything affirming or even questioning about sexuality in their social media. And for a lot of these kids, like Aaron said, um, and we, we've seen this happen, we've just been approached by four new um, potential plaintiffs, Blake, who just at the start of this academic year find themselves suspended, expelled, given 24-hour notice to pack your bags and get out of town. What does that mean to a 19-year-old who is being expelled or suspended, given 24 hours to pack their bags? What if their families are also not affirming? Where do they live? Often they become houseless or they're floating on couches until they can find a place to land. But just imagine your family shunning you, your college throwing you out with 24-hour notice. You lose all your friends, your professors, your mentors, and it can happen to you overnight. It happens all the time in these spaces. And so a lot of people like to blame the kids. Well, you should never have gone there. Well, they really haven't done the work to think through why would they end up there? And if you understood why they end up there, I think there'd be a lot more compassion for these kids. I want to add to like, and, and just Paul explaining that, like, imagine, you know, you're, you're 18, 19, you've gotten into a college and you're going there because you want to flourish and thrive just like everyone else does. You want to have a career. You want to have, you know, a relationship with someone. You want to have a normal life just like everybody else does. But what Paul described um, and what I described shows that for the queer and trans student, this reality, this sense of normalcy doesn't happen at all in these spaces. And imagine like their straight peers, the straight, the straight person in this college experience gets to have all those things, gets to have a safe environment to learn in, gets to flourish in a relationship, hold hands with their partner, do whatever with their partners, you know, for the queer and trans student, th this is, this is off the table completely. So in comparison to their straight peers, um, the treatment is, is absolutely deplorable and egregious. Um, and that's something that we're trying to call out is like, you know, look at, look at the experiences that these folks are having. Homelessness, non-affirming families, getting kicked out, getting expelled, getting things taken away from them or whatever. This doesn't happen to straight people in these spaces. It just doesn't. Yeah. This is public knowledge at this point. My alma mater is named in this suit. I went to Indiana Wesleyan. I did see that the, the person is filing their suit synonymously because they're a current student and they are uh, afraid of that very thing. I graduated 15 years ago now, more than that. I'm an elder millennial, so I'm showing my age there, uh, but it hasn't changed. Like, and, and it hasn't changed in the sort of way that I think a, 
uh, some people who don't have experience in these spaces um, ex sort of expect that over the the gains uh, in overall social acceptance of queer relationships and identities over the last 20 years uh, are pervasive uh, in society. But here, what you're really illustrating is a place where there are still fundamentally uh, a lack of rights, uh, a lack of ability to be one's full self uh, and uh, participate in a safe student environment. I think you touch on a couple of important social dynamics that are at play here. And I'm of your generation, Blake. I'm also an elder millennial, <laughs> and I went to one of these schools. And I'll say that, you know, back in the, 2000, the early 2000s, there was no social media at all, or it was just very, very new. But now it's ubiquitous. And now you see gay people, trans people online talking about their identity, talking about how happy they are, talking about the affirmation they receive. There are so many Netflix shows with queer characters now. And so for, you know, if I was back on campus and transported myself into this environment now, I'd be, I'd be even more upset, you know, or I'd feel even more tension because it's like, whoa, this, there is this possibility of happiness and I don't have access to it. And in fact, if I try to access any of that, I could immediately be removed from my entire world. And you know, this podcast is evangelical, right? It talks a lot about deconstruction. Imagine, imagine being a queer person attending a hermeneutics class, or, you know, I remember taking my Bible courses. All of these colleges have mandatory theology and Bible courses. And, you know, they're taught from an academic perspective, or they're supposed to be taught from a critical perspective. And it makes you question your theological beliefs or your hermeneutics or all of this stuff. And so queer people are doing that too on these, in these spaces, but as they're doing it, they're doing it under threat. They're, they're doing it under, uh, with the knowledge that if they at all transgress the university's theological or political positions on LGBT issues, that they could be thrown out. And straight people aren't thrown out for deconstructing in these schools. Uh, queer people are. Or they can be disciplined um, in, in other ways, in more subtler ways than being thrown out. Their grades could suffer. They can have um, specific titles or things taken away or removed from them if they are part of certain groups or um, things like that. Those, those situations have happened. And it's also like it's an interesting position to be in as a, as a queer person, when you're talking about your body, your experience, your life, you know, but every, all these other straight people get to just casually talk about it. Like it's, it's just some other, I, I don't know. It's so strange. Like I, I had a professor compare homosexuality to bestiality in a, in a class at Biola. And that might be a fun conversation for straight people to have. But for me, the queer person sitting in the room, you know, the, the assumption that these professors and, and a lot of these folks have is that everybody sitting in the room is straight. And that is not true. They don't realize how damaging, how hurtful an assumption so big as to claim that homosexuality is like bestiality. This is something that happens every day in these classrooms. And the queer kid has to sit there and and you know what I mean? Be silent or say something at great risk. Um, it's it's wild that that this doesn't again just amplifying and and exaggerating that this does not happen to straight people in these spaces. But when it comes to the ways in which administrations administer either discipline or or what have you, however they try to classify their institutionalized homophobia. What are some examples of that 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 you're going to be presenting um, through your suit as as the ways in which these people, your your students, the, the plaintiffs in your case, were harmed or discriminated against because of their queer identity or behavior? I don't even know if that's a, yeah, I don't even know if that's the proper terminology. So please feel free to correct me there. <laughs> Blake, I was gonna say we have plenty of examples. <laughs> 
So un- mm-hmm. unfortunately yeah. and sadly, we do. Um, for yes. our case, I, I think it should be persuasive to the courts and to the public that, look, we're not talking about, like, we didn't have to scour the universe trying to find that one person harmed. No, it is systemic and it is on a massive scale. So I can give you some other examples of ways that discipline or discrimination or harassment occurs. Um, So there are, for student athletes, for example, student athletes who cross boundaries can be removed from their athletic programs. They can be removed from their leadership positions on teams. Um, we will also see- Are there scholarships threatened? Scholarships taken away, threatened, or just completely taken away. We'll also see um, that, oh, what was I gonna say? At some of these schools, uh, this might be a very strange concept to people who are not familiar with fundamentalist colleges, but at a lot of the most fundamentalist colleges, they have deans for women and deans for men. And so when you get in trouble, if you are assigned the male sex, you will be handed over to the dean of men. Same for women. Well, what we're seeing a lot of times, if someone says something that might give away that they are lesbian, or that they are trans, and if they are biologically assigned sex of female, they'll be sent to mandatory meetings with the dean of women to become a little bit more ladylike, to become more of a heteronormative version of a woman. And so it's not the same thing as conversion therapy being done by a therapist, but it's essentially someone in leadership telling you you have to be more like a cisgender, heteronormative woman or else. And let's have a Bible study about it once a week, mandatory. Very, very similar toxic environment to conversion therapy. Um, and a lot of the kids, they try to do that, and then they just get so depressed, anxious, and terrified. If they don't complete it, then they get kicked out. So we see... These are shaming devices, right? We're going to take away your leadership positions. We're going to take away your scholarship. The whole point is shame. Shame for the individual who is being punished, but then what else does that do? That sends a message to all the other young people that if you dare to come out or you dare to say something positive about LGBT issues, you're next. That's going to be you next. So these are real, very real threats. Um, And so those are other forms of discipline, but we also have seen explicit conversion therapy. You have to go to conversion therapy for your gender identity if you wanna remain a student. Um, We see denial of access to hormones, denial of use of pronouns or gender affirming pronouns or names. We see sexual assault complaints and sexual harassment complaints, many of which are never actually brought forward due to the fear that I mentioned. But when they are brought forward, they're treated as nothing. They are discarded by the university and they are not given the attention that Title IX requires that they should be given. And so there's a whole host of ways in which this oppression and discipline manifest itself. I appreciate that detail and and just addressing that directly. Um, I know that, as I mentioned, I know that you've um, already addressed a lot of that through your other responses, but that's really valuable information for this audience and for anyone else who's curious about the work that you're doing. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. 
I, I want to actually return um, more broadly to this idea about religious exemption. And this is the the legal shield that these organizations use. Um, there's actually a pretty sordid, unflattering history there for Christian colleges, namely regarding segregation. The modern religious right was mobilized not because of abortion, but because of the federal government threatening to pull funding for segregationist academies like Bob Jones, who is also named in this suit. Um, I mentioned that not to make some sort of direct and equal parallel between those civil rights issues and the ones that you're bringing, but rather to show that there's a history there with these institutions, right? Um, so with that in mind, how does that type of legacy impact or affect your own efforts in this suit and whatever else uh, REAP may be trying to do in the future and, and drawing attention to how uh, these Christian institutions, um, largely Christian, uh, but religious, religious colleges overall um, are, are, not, are denying access of, of rights to their students. I'm glad you raised that, Blake. And at REAP, we really see our work as intersectional, and it's it's just very blatantly. <laughs> um, uh, it, it has to be intersectional. These institutions, the same institutions that claim a sincerely held religious belief entitling them to hurt queer people, they claim the very same thing, um, a sincerely held religious belief in the separation of the races and in God's prohibition of interracial marriage and interracial dating. And they held those beliefs until it became so politically unpopular, which is another way of saying they were going to lose more money by adhering to those beliefs than they were going to lose by um, getting rid of those beliefs. It wasn't until that point in time that they, that they eventually turned. But... I completely it, it's been it's been really interesting to dig into the history of religious exemption and um, because you're right, it, it's born out of racism and it's born out of these segregation academies, which started as a response to Brown versus Board of Education, which integrated the public schools. So all of these white fundamentalist families are like, well, I'm not sending my kids uh, with any of these black families. So let's start our own private religious schools and try to operate a whites only segregation academy. And they did, and they lasted for a very long time until um, social pressure and then court cases. Um, and so Bob Jones University versus the United States is one of the most important Supreme Court decisions relating to the issues that we are working on. It's a 1983 Supreme Court decision in which in an eight to one vote, so that means moderates, conservatives, and liberal justices, save for Justice Rehnquist, um, all agreed in an eight to one decision that Bob Jones University it had they, they recognized it had sincerely held religious beliefs about the inferiority of the races, but they said that does not justify government support for those racist religious beliefs. Even though they're based on sincerely held beliefs, the government does not need to support them. And that's what our case is about. We're not suing any, we're, we're, our lawsuit will not affect truly private discriminating institutions that don't take any money from the government, our case will only affect those schools that are being propped up and funded very heavily by the federal government. And so we draw a very clear line from those cases um, on through sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. But I don't want to uh, lose sight of the intersectionality with misogyny at these institutions. You know, the Title IX religious exemption was in 1970, I think it was 1973, 72 or 73, um, when Title IX was enacted. What was the point of the religious exemption then? To punish women for getting pregnant outside of marriage, to punish women for access to reproductive health, and also to prohibit women from entering certain degree programs. And so it's this, it's this same desire by largely uh, you know, white, cis, straight men who have run these institutions for decades that has preserved this, this abhorrence for the other, for anyone who does not conform to heteronormativity and to whiteness. Um, and so 
we very much trace it back to those segregation academies. And what I think, so you might think, well, then why haven't they, you know, gotten up to speed? Well, look at the boards of directors. The boards of directors of the schools control the schools. And if you look at those boards, they're largely older, white, straight, cis men who are trying to hold on to their vision of the 1950s. And so far, the Supreme Court, Congress, the LGBT rights movement itself, have let them. And we are here to disrupt that. REAP is here to disrupt that. You don't get to keep doing that anymore. This is one of the things that some other pockets of liberalism don't understand or appreciate is the way in which these organizations are very dedicated to staying the way they are and are well-funded. And there are even some hopeful, more liberal-minded uh, evangelicals who would like to see some progress within their own communities, but there are these very powerful, very wealthy uh, donors that would very much like it to stay the way it is. <laughs> and that's why even though as the populace becomes more openly queer, we still see this sort of behavior from these institutions. The dynamics are fascinating, and I, I think it is very important to recognize that it is not outsiders who are coming in trying to tell these Christian schools what to do. It is insiders. I am an insider. This was my community. Aaron is an insider. And if the decisions were being made by the current student body, even by the current faculty at these schools, we know that they would be fully affirming. Um, Seattle Pacific's faculty voted 75% to 25%. Seattle Pacific University, which is one of these schools that has anti-LGBT policies, its faculty voted publicly 75% that they have no confidence in the board of directors for upholding the anti-LGBT policies of the school. 75% of the faculty. Baylor's faculty recently voted against the administration to allow an LGBT student club at Baylor University, um, Gamma Alpha Upsilon. These faculty, they're the ones working with the students. They're the ones that the students confide in when they're feeling suicidal. They're the ones that the students go to for help. And they get it. They get that these students deserve safety, protection, and full inclusion. And so I wish that the faculty and the student body, which are really who these institutions are about, I wish that they would be, have more power in this discussion because our case wouldn't be necessary if they had the power. But unfortunately, the power resides in wealthy donors and some big, um, the boards. And unfortunately, this structural, systemic, religious exemption, they completely get away with it. There is, they are immune. They are immune and they have access to almost like full access to billions of dollars from the federal government. So why would they change? Aaron, would it be appropriate in this in this context to talk about your own experience and in, in trying to lobby? As Paul mentioned, you were an insider. You were an attendee at one of these schools. Would it be appropriate for you to talk about your own experience and trying to move these things? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think it is appropriate. It's it's I think it it gives people an idea of just how difficult and the, the you know, the roadblocks that administration puts up um, just for something little with like changing a word in a policy or changing the idea of a policy for, for all students. But um, I did want to mention something that I thought was interesting. We we're talking about faculty. Um, and I think I can say this now because it's, it's way after the fact I, I did promise this, this person, um, so I won't say the university that it happened to, but this professor reached out to me and said, I'm, I'm talking to you or I'm reaching out to you as a friend, not your professor. But I want to let you know that I am receiving so much pressure from the university um, because this professor was pro-Black Lives Matter, pro-LGBTQ student, this person was someone that, that queer and trans students went to on the regular because they were so open and loving and accepting. This professor had to go on sabbatical because the 
poor treatment and the harassment and the pressure that they were receiving from other members of faculty and administration. And they reached out, this professor reached out to me saying, I can't, like, I now have some semblance of what you go through on a daily basis. I understand now. So Paul is right that the faculty don't have um, nearly the same kinds of rights or the same kinds of pull or persuasion in the system that we wish they could have. Um, and it's unfortunate. But when I had discussions with, I, I always start with the president. That's what I do. I want to talk to the president and I want to tell them what we want and what we need. Um, and they usually, because it's me, because I'm a pushy person <laughs> and the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I mean, that's my tactic, you know? Um, so at Azusa Pacific University, <laughs> for example, they had a, a policy which banned romanticized same-sex relationships. And like the specificity of that, even in and of itself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, my argument was, it wasn't even really a theological argument. It was just a logical argument <laughs> that how could you, like, you are making the assumption that all LGBTQ people in a relationship are having sexual or engaged in sexual activity, which is a bad assumption. You can remove this policy and make the assumption just like you make for your straight students that they're not going to have sex before they're married and we all know that they are but you're not applying or monitoring that you know in the same fashion as you are for queer and trans students so i was basically arguing that you don't equally apply this policy to straight people as you do to the queer community and i said you got to you got to get rid of this this is this is trash I can't tell you the amount. I mean, I had so many discussions and panels with faculty and donors, and we we must have done one or two of these a month. Oh, let's have another discussion about it. Oh, let's talk about it. You know, that's all they want to do is just keep talking about it and talking about it without actually taking any action to protect the students. So finally, under the radar at Azusa Pacific University, we get a member of administration to agree to remove the policy from the student handbook because they, they sided with us in our argument. So they removed it. And what did we do? We celebrated it all over social media. And Azusa Pacific didn't like that at all. Um, so they reinstated the policy <laughs> uh, because we pissed off a bunch of donors. So um, it turned into this big... A controversial thing and, and finally the student government was able to get them to remove the policy again but I it, this process just to remove a sentence from a handbook took about two years to achieve um, so it's and then then for a, <laughs> the other thing that I think that people don't realize is that if you're going to be a queer activist on a, on a Christian campus, like I was, not only are you trying to get through your academic career with hopefully with good grades, but you're fighting all these battles just to be an equal standing person at this campus. And it's, it's again, my, the, the straights, don't have to do this, you know? I'm just trying to go to college. I'm trying to get my degree and bounce, you know? But I've got to, like, you know, have our discussions with administration and the chaplain and the president and whatever, you know, just to just to remove one sentence of a policy that's a ridiculous policy. So it, it takes a lot out of the students. Um, that and and they don't get to have like i said that normal college experience that their straight peers get to have because they're fighting for their rights in these spaces they're fighting for equality in these spaces and just to be recognized um, with dignity respect and value just the basics you know and the schools can't even do that much so it is it is a lot of work 
what we're doing and what the students are doing is a lot of work. Um, so yeah, it's, and that coupled with trying to get your degree. Ooh. How do you see progressive legal efforts like yours counteracting and working against these very established opponents that get a lot of support? Um, I'm, I'm very curious about that just because you want to, you want to know our secret weapon, Blake, you want to know our secret yes. weapon to defeat Goliath? <laughs> <laughs> well, we very, we are very much in a David Goliath situation and, and we've known it, um, from the beginning, but I like, you know, I always like to remember, you know, who, who won that battle. It was David. And right now, situation is more dire than you even uh, expressed. So I will tell you how badly it's stacked against us. <laughs> um, right now, we are fighting the full weight of the federal government's Department of Justice. And I'm glad that we are fighting the Department of Justice under Biden and Merrick Garland. But let me tell you this, it is not an easy fight. And they are fighting us back, which is just a shame. But I want to set that stage that we are actually fighting against a progressive, democratically controlled government in our lawsuit. They have thrown not only their very brilliant lawyers to undermine our case, but actually the Trump, the the the, the lawyer that Trump used to file all these statements of interest that the religious right wanted in all these religious liberty cases, they assigned him to our case. So we're fighting the full weight of the Department of Justice. We also have the Alliance Defending Freedom, a extremely well-funded uh, religious legal nonprofit. They have moved to intervene in our case. We're fighting the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, which is the lobbying arm of these discriminating institutions. They've hired a Supreme Court litigation powerhouse law firm to intervene in our case and get rid of our case. And then just yesterday, Blake, the attorneys general of 12 Republican-controlled states just filed an amicus brief in our case, siding with the Department of Justice, Alliance Defending Freedom, and the CCCU. So the cavalry have come in, and they've got their tanks, they've got endless money, and here we are, little old Reap, with barely anyone on staff, fighting this fight and we've got a horrible supreme court if it gets there so some people might say what the hell are you doing i want to say in response we have thought long and hard about this and we're not being reckless in how we've gone about this we are being very strategic and i think we've been proved right that filing our case now is the right time to file the case and why do i say that Hundreds of suffering young people have come out of the woodworks and are now empowered to tell their story. The machinery of the government that's supposed to be protecting them, we have forced it to at least start working. We have filed complaints with the Department of Education, administrative complaints. We filed this lawsuit. We have young people telling their stories. The, the, the news is picking up and drawing a huge spotlight on this injustice. My personal belief is that if we did nothing else and everything that we had set in motion continues, we will experience victory in the end. And there's a lot of different pathways before we get there, but I think the power of these personal narratives is so key. Um, and then we've also brought in some of our own backups. We now have an international law firm, the law firm of Perkins Coie, um, they have partnered with us and they're fully co-counsel in our litigation now. So um, they have a lot of brains and a lot of bronze and we now have them fighting with us. So we're not completely alone anymore either. It feels lonely up here doing this work. You know, we want the ACLU, we want Lambda Legal, we want the Biden administration to have our backs and to like be fully in this. And, you know, I think that they will get there. I think that they will get there, but somebody has to make a first move and we've made it. 
And I do want to say we're also following a playbook. And this goes back to one of your earlier points about this intersectionality and the history of racism and segregated education. I have studied how we got to the to the Bob Jones University case that I mentioned, the 1983 Supreme Court case. It didn't start there. It started in the 1960s when the parents of black kids sued the government for funding all white religious segregation academies. They brought those lawsuits in Mississippi, in Louisiana. They won some, they lost some, but eventually they created precedent and narrative that led to the ultimate victory in 1983. So we're in it for the long haul. There might be some losses on the way, but we're following a game plan that was effective in the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. And we think it'll be effective here. Right. I think you're right on in that regard. And that, um, you know, not every individual case is that gets the outcome that you want, but it does move things forward. Um, and that is such a, just a really valuable thing. Even as you said, it can encourage people to come forward as it's already done. Um, and the more that people feel emboldened to do that, the stronger your case becomes in and out of court. Something I always sort of come back to, especially in these types of conversations that have, that deal with larger social things, not, not only just someone's uh, personal story, but whenever you're collecting so many stories and so many people's interests, like, like this class action lawsuit is, is how the religious right is so successful at driving debate. It's really successful at defining the language that we, that people use on both sides, uh, in air quotes again, to talk about issues. I am curious, like, given that what you just said, Paul, about how the existence of this case is allowing people to be braver, even in their own lives, or to be more to disclose uh, about their own experience in other spaces, not even just within the confines of the legal system. How else can uh, we continue to offer that counter narrative uh, or propose a new type of narrative that isn't dictated by Christian nationalists or homophobes? Well, that is a really good question and good insight. I. I, I don't know if you know this, Blake, but I I was a child of Alliance Defending Freedom. I actually worked there um, in the inner core as a legal fellow, um, and I worked at the Family Research Council as well. So I'm very familiar with the mindset and the language and the messaging that is used to basically instill fear in people um, to get them to go along with the agenda that they have. What is the best counter message for that? Um, it, it, it might just sound very simple, but I think that it is letting the abused share their stories, giving them a platform to do that. And that's one of the purposes of REAP is people email us all the time saying, I thought I was the only one this was happening to. Here's my story. Oh my God, I'm so glad that we found you. And what we want to do is, even if people don't want to become plaintiffs in a major class action lawsuit, and not everyone does, and I don't blame them for not wanting to, they, just by sharing their story, if they can do it publicly, if it's safe, that is huge, because that defeats the, uh, the counter-narrative, um, is, is seeing this, this young person who is genuine, and it, it, it all makes sense why they're there, what they're going through. It really defeats the narrative. So what we try to keep pushing in, in our lawsuit and outside of our lawsuit are the experiences of these young people, because that is what is really going to win the over hearts and minds. Um, we're also working on developing um, film content um, that will be highlighting some of this. Um, and then we have uh, other types of complaints that people can file. So we have now started a Title IX complaint program. And so that means if you have experienced discrimination at your school, but you don't want to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit, we'll help you file an administrative complaint with the Department of Education. And that can be empowering in itself. And you can use a pseudonym if you're too scared to use your real name, or you can use your real name. We'll help you fill out the form. We'll put it on the government's desk. 
And basically, we want those Title IX complaints to pile up so high that the government can no longer ignore the cries of these young people. Because the religious right has done so good at scaring all these queer people that they are just silent and they have nowhere to voice the abuse. And so we want to help them voice that. And we want the broader world to know that it's not just one or two of these kids. There are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of these students at these institutions that are suffering very similar things. And when you have that amount of suffering on an institutional and system-wide level, that means the government needs to do something. Mm. Aaron, did you have any any other thoughts as well uh, as far as how either current students or sympathetic faculty and, and your role as working on campuses? The sort of thing that, that I asked Paul regarding counter-narratives or anything else to, to push back on that. Yeah, I think... Um... So we we talked about this earlier is I think really helping educate people in the public to understand why queer and trans students go to religious colleges um, and why they end up in these spaces, because that's the number one question I know Paul gets asked. It's the number one question I get asked. And I think if, if we can help explain and like, help it wrap around people's minds like oh it's not they're not just choosing to go here you know necessarily like these schools are courting them too these schools will take their money these schools will not give an informed consent procedure um these schools make them feel desirable and wanted that's what happened to me at biola that's what happened to me at azusa pacific they don't care they'll take your money um so I think having folks in the public recognize like, okay, this is, this is the reality for queer and trans students in these spaces. It's not necessarily by, through their own decision to get here. Um, I really think that that's the key because that's the question we get asked the most. Um, so that's part of the, the key to me to changing the narrative is how, helping people understand why. And then it's like, okay, well, then what do I do? How can I help? What can I do to help? And that's the next step, right? Is us educating on them on ways that the public can help and the pu- how the public can get involved mm. in what's happening. That's great. And I, Paul, Aaron, I, I really appreciate you, you both just taking the time to talk to me about your efforts with this lawsuit and all the other types of programs that, that you're working on in order to move these social issues forward because it's going to benefit Uh, queer students on Christian campuses, even today. Uh, And I'm very interested and we'll be, we'll be cheering you on (laughs) as, as we watch this proceed through the courts and elsewhere. Where can people find information about REAP? Um, Where can they uh, either find information about the lawsuit or about either of you? Anything you want to mention here at the end about if people need those resources or if they're looking to support you in some other way. Oh, thanks, Blake. Really happy to be part of this. Um, People can find us at www.thereap.org and you can download the lawsuit there. You can meet the plaintiffs. We have a sort of interactive thing where you can click on their picture and learn more about each plaintiff and their background. Um, You can donate um, through thereap.org. There's an online donate button, signing up for our newsletter. Um, and we post periodic updates up there as well. So that's that's the great spot to to learn about what we're doing. <laughs> we're also on the social medias. So you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And we love people. Like, that's what I was just talking about. Like, what, how can you help? You can donate. Help us recirculate our stories. Help us share these stories. Help it get pushed out into the public even further um, so that we can get as many people on board with this project as possible. Yeah, and if any of your listeners have experienced discrimination at a religious educational institution and want to share it, we also have a feature on our website where you can share your story confidentially. We'll keep it confidential, and then someone from our team will contact you if you're interested in sharing it more publicly. So the, those that, that helps us as well. Great. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me and sharing about your own stories as well as the important work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Blake. Thanks, Blake. 
1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.